This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello? Hello, is this Scott? Yeah. This is Jonathan Master calling. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Hey, thank you for your willingness to uh, do this interview. Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm the host, Jonathan Master. I also serve as Dean of the School of Divinity and Professor of Theology at Cairn University. Uh, We are excited to be continuing our series on the doctrine of God here on Theology on the Go. We are delighted today to have as our guest Dr. Scott Swain, who is Professor of Systematic Theology and Academic Dean at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. He is the author of Trinity Revelation and Reading, and he co-authored Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity in John's Gospel, and is the co-author of Reformed Catholicity and Christian Dogmatics, Reformed Theology for the Church Catholic. Our topic today is the Trinity, and our guest is Dr. Scott Swain. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. So I want to begin with a definition. Could you just give us a, a brief working definition of the Trinity? Um, actually, no, <laughs> if I can be a little bit technical. But, you know, part of what uh, historically the Church has insisted is that we can't give a definition for God just for the very reason that anytime you talk about a definition, you're talking about locating something within a kind of creaturely set of classification. So if you define human being as a rational animal, you've put him in a class of animals, and you said what kind of animal he is, a rational animal. So there's been a, a really anti-idolatry impulse that's wanted, has led Christians to want to say you can't define God. Now, having said that, we can then say there are true and faithful descriptions that we can provide of God rooted in um, God's self-revelation, descriptions that are appropriately disciplined by uh, the wonder of that revelation. So if I can be a little bit uh, persnickety on that point, um, by way of preface, I'd say no, no definition, but a good description, a, I think, faithful description um, would be one that you find, for example, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, question and answer nine. Um, if I can give a little bit of a contemporary Swain translation, uh, the Catechism says there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. And that's a very good uh, description. I think it's one that basically any Christian should be able to affirm. Uh, Protestant, Catholic, Reformed, Lutheran, Baptist, what have you. It's, it's a kind of a good, solid, common summary of, of the doctrine of the Trinity. That, that's, that's great. I appreciate the distinction you made at the beginning between a definition and a description. And I'm wondering if you could sort of build upon that and, and, and talk a little bit about some of the major strands of biblical evidence that lead us toward the description that you just outlined. Yeah. 
So I, I think when we think about how the Bible reveals Trinity, we, we have to think kind of at two different levels. On the one hand, there's the the obvious kind of dimension of the revelation that God is one. You think of Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, but I would also think of texts like Deuteronomy 4.35, where it says that Yahweh is the God, suggesting that there's only one being who truly deserves uh, the description God. And then, um, along with the revelation of the one God, you've got other biblical passages that reveal that the Father is this one true God, that the Son is this one true God, that the Spirit is this one true God. And the Bible, of course, identifies these three with the one God in a number of different ways. It shows them sharing the divine name, the Lord. Um, It shows them performing divine works, think of works of creation, works of providence, of redemption, and so forth. It shows them uh, receiving the worship that is due to God alone. And then the, the last kind of strain of revelation in this first category would be the names, uh, the personal names of Father, Son, and Spirit, and those like them that distinguish the three from each other, and that distinguish them from each other specifically by their relationships. So there's one who is Father to another who's described as the Son, who's also described as the Father's Word, His image, His the radiance of His glory, and so forth. And then there's one who's named the Holy Spirit, who's also described as the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son. And so it's really the revelation of the one God, the revelation that these three are this one true God, um, and then that they are distinguished from each other by these relationships in which they stand to one another. That, at the most kind of basic level, is the the biblical evidence for uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, having said that, the other kind of aspect to the way that the Bible reveals the Trinity is not just in revealing uh, these kind of different lines of evidence, but it's also actually in teaching us how to think rightly about God. Um, It might seem obvious that, well, okay, if the Bible says God is one, the Bible says God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit, that's all we need, boom, we've got the doctrine of the Trinity. But the Bible also teaches us that whenever we use words like one, or whenever we use words like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have to realize that the Bible applies these words to God in a sense that is different, indeed radically different from the sense uh, that we use those terms in ordinary discourse. Um, And so here's where we get into kind of broader biblical teaching about what it means that we are creatures made in God's image, that in some sense we are like God, and so there can be uh, speech about God in our language. But on the other hand, biblical teaching that while we are like God, God is not like us. <laughs> in fact, that is one of the kind of fundamental descriptions of idolatry that you see in the Scripture. You see Paul making this point in Romans 1, appealing to Psalm 106, where he describes uh, Gentiles uh, exchanging the glory 
of the immortal God for that of a creature. Well, uh, idolatry at its fundamental level is thinking about God and speaking about God as if he were one of us, or as if he could be thought of and spoken of in, in creaturely categories. And so it's that kind of second level of, of biblical teaching about the distinction between God and his creatures, the similarities between God and his creatures, that teaching provides, as it were, the framework within which this other revelation of God, of his, his unity and of the distinct persons, it's it's the framework within which that makes sense. You might think about it as, as, as uh, you know, musical notes and the scale upon which we put those musical notes. You know, the revelation that God is one, the revelation of the God's name as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these are the notes. But the scale is that distinction between creator and creature that, that, that tells us how to understand those names, how to use those names in a way that appropriately honors the reality of the one who reveals himself through those names. That, that's a that's a really helpful analogy. I, I like that about the the musical notes and, and the scales uh, and 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 I do want to talk in just a minute about some errors that we need to avoid or some some common errors that you've seen. But I wonder if you could just take another step or two into the into the deep end of the pool with this. On our last episode, we talked with James Dalzell about the simplicity of God. Um, in in many ways, a, a difficult doctrine for for many to grasp. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about the intersection between the Trinity and simplicity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's not uncommon to see contemporary theologians asking the question: Is the doctrine of divine simplicity consistent with the doctrine of the Trinity? Um, but the fact of the matter is, for almost the entire history of Christian theology, certainly from the 4th century up to the edge of the 18th into the 19th century, um, the, the assumption would have been the opposite, that you can't have a doctrine of the Trinity without a doctrine of divine simplicity. And that's certainly true of what is that fundamental, foundational, uh, creedal confession of the Trinity that we have at Nicaea and then later confirmed and and, um, clarified at the Council of Constantinople. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity professed there presupposes divine simplicity. And the reason is, is divine simplicity is one of those ways of reminding us that God is not a creature. Uh, While we use creaturely language to talk about God, God isn't one of us. And specifically, God isn't composite. He's not made up of different parts, whether it's physical parts or whether it's composition of um, essence and existence or class and member of a class and so forth. And so it's a way of really pointing to the perfection of God and, and, and saying that when we speak of God, the Trinity, we're not one to speak as, for example, polytheism would speak of, well, sir, there are all kinds of gods, and they might have greater or lesser degrees of deity, or we're not speaking about a kind of ancient emperor that might be divinized and promoted to the status of deity, although we acknowledge that, well, actually, metaphysically, that's a human being. 
No, divine simplicity is a way of saying, when we speak of God, we're speaking of the one God who is not a creature, and therefore, when we affirm that these three are God and the one God, we're making a quite radical claim. Um, the other thing simplicity does, it explains for us why these personal names, Father, Son, and Spirit, which as I mentioned earlier, these names signify the relations that persons hold uh, in relation to each other. It tells us why it's only these names that truly account for distinctions in God. The only real distinctions there are in the one true God are the distinctions between the persons. All other distinctions are just distinctions that come from our limited attempt to, to understand the infinite God and to speak of him faithfully and so forth. And so uh, it, it helps us to, to realize the reality of God's unity, but also the nature of his triunity. And then, and then the last thing simplicity does, because it teaches us that God's being is indivisible, that is, it can't be divided into parts. It teaches us that when we say that the Father is God, or the Son is God, or the Spirit is God, uh, it's not possible to say that they're partially God. If we say that the Son is God, and God is simple, then the Son is fully God. God is like pregnancy. <laughs> There's no degrees in deity. You either are or you aren't. And so simplicity is really essential to the orthodox uh, doctrine of God, the doctrine of God that's derived from uh, biblical revelation. Yeah, I, I recently came across uh, an arresting quote that, that you had written, uh, just along those lines, something like, without the doctrine of simplicity, there would be no need for the doctrine of the Trinity. And I thought that just captured uh, really concisely and clearly uh, the kind of thing you're 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 talking about now. No, a, yeah, yeah, the world and in contemporary philosophy as well. There, there are all kinds of ways of talking about different divine persons that don't constitute Trinitarian theology. Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that 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 was that was really helpful and and a, and a good reminder of the centrality of that doctrine of simplicity, even if it's often ignored in um, contemporary evangelicalism. All right, so. I want to move one step further from there and talk about something else that is, I would consider, in the deep end here. Um, could you talk about uh, what you've referred to as the doctrine of inseparable operations? Um, and, and by the way, for our readers, if you want to uh, footnote something here, uh, Dr. Swain wrote a short piece in May of, of 2015 on one of our sister sites, Reformation 21, in, entitled On Not Destroying Fruitful Trees, A Brief Defense of the Doctrine of Inseparable Operations. But I'm assuming they're not going to turn off the podcast right now and look at that. So why don't you speak a little bit about the unity of divine operation or the doctrine of inseparable operations? Yeah. So the, the easiest way to get a handle on the doctrine of inseparable operations is to view it as essentially an aspect of biblical monotheism. So biblical monotheism teaches that God's being is one. There's but one God. Um, well, biblical monotheism also teaches that because God's being is one, his action is one. It's, it's singular. There's one divine power 
there's one divine work in performing God's works outside of him. God uh, didn't need anyone to help him create the world. Isaiah 40 makes this point. Who created the world? God alone did it. God by his own singular power. Um, Hosea chapter 1 talks about God's future work of salvation and says God's not going to use any helpers there either. Not going to depend on horses or, or soldiers or whatever. He's going to do it by himself alone. He's going to save by the Lord. <laughs> and so the doctrine of separable operations is the application of monotheism to God's works. Um, you think of the, the, the slogan, salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? That, that's another way of getting at the idea. Only God, the one God, is the source of salvation. Um, it's a really important uh, piece of Trinitarian theology, but it, it's really deeply rooted in Scripture. Think of the, the argument in Galatians 3 and 4, where Paul's doing this little redemptive historical discussion of, of the various administrations of the covenant of grace. He talks about the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and leads us into the new covenant. Well, he, he, he says this thing in verse 18, God gave it, that is, the... the the promises that he gave in the covenant. He gave it to Abraham by a promise, and there the, the point, I think, is that it's a, a unilateral promise that God guaranteed himself that he would fulfill. But later on, when Paul wants to talk about the role of the law, he says the law can't be the means to fulfilling this unilateral promise. Why? Because God is one? Now think about that, essentially. What's, what's, the, what's the point of that argument there? Well, that's a really difficult passage, but I think part of what he's getting at is, again, the salvation promised to Abraham, the blessings promised to Abraham coming from the one God. It's a salvation, and it's a, it's a set of promises that only the one God could bring about. And so when you get into chapter 4, and Paul says, at the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption as sons, and because you are sons, he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, and so forth. He summarizes the, this whole Trinitarian work of fulfilling the Abrahamic promise. He summarizes it, I believe it's in verse 7. He says, we've been made heirs through God. In other words, it's by God's singular power, by God's singular work, that he has fulfilled this unilateral promise he made to Abraham. And so um, it's uh, the doctrine of indivisible operations is rooted in monotheism, and it's really rooted in our understanding of salvation as a unilateral divine work. Salvation involves one divine power, one divine work. It's God alone who purposed our salvation. It's God alone who accomplished our salvation. It's God alone who assures us of a salvation. That's the point of the doctrine. And, and and just to put a finer point on on the argument you just made, the the doctrine of the Trinity in no way takes away from that reality. Uh, in other words, you're, you're you're both affirming the Trinity and affirming this important truth about monotheism. Exactly, exactly. And this is the whole point. It's this is Paul's point in Galatians 4, is that what God did through his Son and his Spirit wasn't something that God did through other agencies, as it were. 
right? Not through a horse or not through the sword or something. It's something that he himself did by his own power. And so the distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the work of salvation, there is a distinction, right? The Father sent the Son. The Son didn't send the Father. The Father and the Son sent the Spirit. The Spirit didn't send the Father and the Son. There really is a personal distinction. But that distinction is not between different agencies. It's within that one divine power, that one divine agency. And so... The, the, the external operations of God, they're indivisible, but that indivisible operation certainly does not compromise the personal distinctions, but it does say that their personal distinctions occur within God's agency in terms of his action, just as the personal distinctions that constitute the persons um, occur within God's singular being, not outside of his being. No, and and just as a as a brief note to our our listeners, the 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 things that Doctor Swain has been describing for us, this unity of divine operation ad extra, or doctrine of inseparable or indivisible operations, and divine simplicity, are uh, unfortunately not affirmed um, across the spectrum of evangelical theology. So it is something to dive more deeply into, to not take for granted, and to to think really clearly and biblically on. And that actually leads me to uh, my next question, which is, I know you teach about the Trinity, both in in seminary and, and in, in church settings and other settings as well. So what, what errors commonly do you see people succumbing to most when when speaking about the Trinity? What are, what are the things that, you know, if you were to sort of put together a little list of the things that people normally either struggle with or, or just flat out in their expressions uh, speak wrongly about. Uh, what, what do you see there? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's common you hear people to describe, for example, the persons as parts of God, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Which, again, you know, it's not that you add the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together, and when you add them up, you get the one God. No, each person is fully God, and again... God doesn't have parts. Uh, that's uh, part of the doctrine of simplicity. That's a common mistake. Uh, you also hear the persons described as people, maybe three uh, friends who are, you know, enjoy dancing together. This is a very common analogy that, that has been popularized in, in recent years um, by some kind of leading um, communicators of our day. Uh, but again, this is a, a, fail, a failure to, to realize that these three persons uh, are not three people. That would be separate, three distinct beings, but these three persons are one uh, divine being. And I think the, the, and then you think of the kind of Trinitarian analogies of water, ice, and so forth. All of these errors are essentially, I think they boil down to forgetting the point I made earlier. While we are made in God's image, God is not made in our image. Um, and, and, and all of these are attempts to kind of try to think about God in creaturely categories. And they're all, in, in some sense, a kind of stumbling uh, before the reality that the, that the doctrine of the Trinity transcends human reason. It's something we can know. It's something we can uh, truly embrace by faith and confess faithfully, but it's something that transcends uh, the categories of, of creaturely reason. Um, and so and again, the many other mistakes, those are some of the, the very common ones that um, I run across. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I can I can identify with with hearing some of those same things. Uh, so, last question, Doctor Swain. Uh, I I wonder if there are any books or resources that you might recommend on this topic of the Trinity. Uh, perhaps uh, maybe a few at some different levels. Um, you've written some things, obviously yourself, but maybe some books for Christians just thinking about this seriously, and then maybe some some great resources that. That that individual Christians should aspire to to read and study. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that um, I'll move from kind of maybe more introductory works to slightly more advanced works. I, I think a great starting place um, for thinking clearly about the Trinity is catechisms. Um, we've got the Westminster Shorter, Larger Catechism. We've got the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, most Protestant catechisms, there are some exceptions, um, but if you kind of stick in 17th century or earlier, you're, you're probably not going to set your toe here. Most Protestant catechisms have a sound and yet concise uh, summary of the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and again, learning the catechism, the point is not so much it's going to help you comprehend these things. Again, the whole point of the doctrine is, is we cannot comprehend it in our own understanding. But they will, catechisms can give us the, to, to speak of the musical analogy earlier, they, they can help us follow the tune of Scripture, right? Uh, children can understand the tune of a song. They can learn to sing a song without understanding music theory, Right? That's what the catechism can help us do. Can at least help us to to follow the pattern of biblical revelation, even though we don't understand the science behind it. And indeed, no human beings do. God alone knows Himself in that kind of a way. So I'd say catechisms are a great place to start, and hopefully, catechetical teaching with the context of the church, uh, catechetical sermons. Uh, other sources, though, I mentioned just a few kind of introductory, uh, Herman Bovink has a book called Our Reasonable Faith. I understand that there is a, a new edition that's due out sometime soon. The chapter on the Trinity in that book is a very fine introduction written by a, a wonderful theologian, but not written as a kind of seminary textbook, but really written for uh, the lay person. Um, I recommend the chapter on the Trinity in that book. Also, uh, a new book that is edited by Carl Truman and Brandon Crow, uh, two profs at Westminster Seminary. Uh, the book is called The Essential Trinity, and it's a good overview of the biblical uh, lines of evidence for the Orthodox doctrine, and it also talks about some of the practical implications. Uh, and then also by way of kind of introductory treatment, a book by Fred Sanders called Deep Things of God, uh, it's a book that is really devoted to showing the practical implications of Trinitarian theology. Uh, moving beyond those sources to kind of maybe the next level, maybe intermediate level, um, a couple I'll mention here. Stephen Holmes has written a book called The Quest for the Trinity, which is a really a historical survey of the doctrine. He begins talking about kind of what's been going on in contemporary Trinitarian theology, but then he goes back and traces the history of theology. Uh, if, 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 if you've heard wonky things about the Trinity, if, if you're maybe wondering if, if the teaching you've gotten hasn't been so good, uh, Holmes is a good book to go to to kind of set the record straight in terms of the historical record. And, and then the last book I'll mention, also 
kind of intermediate level. Um, it's not too advanced. Uh, by an author named Gilles Emery. He's actually a Dominican uh, theologian. But the title is The Trinity, and it's a good, really, from a systematic theological perspective, a good overview of the doctrine. Now, as a Catholic thinker, uh, Emory does approach some things differently than we would, but for the most part, uh, this is a book that is, is, for all intents and purposes, expounding the same doctrine that you have in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, John Owen once said that when it comes to the Trinity, we agree with Catholics 100%. So um, Emory would be a good source as well. Yeah, the, that's an outstanding recommendation. I, I would I would second that. That uh, Gilles Emery book is just, uh, I think, really, really good. Well, uh, Dr. Swain, thank you so much for, for giving us your time. This has been very illuminating, and, it, you know, these are difficult topics, but ones that are really well worth our, our meditation and study. So thank you for your study, for your writing, and for your time today. You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.